0: Do you remember that sound? If you're in your 20s, you're probably too young to recognize that sound. But most people over the age of 30 will remember and associate that sound with their first high school crush, or perhaps that high school boyfriend or girlfriend or that general love interest. Ah yes, iCQ was one of the first online real-time communication tools for frisky teenagers to keep in touch outside of school. Yes, of course, this was well before the smartphone. ICQ was followed by MSN and then social platforms started popping up like MySpace, Friendster. In hindsight, it all seemed quite simple and playful. And then Facebook came along. Well, that changed things, didn't it? What started as a website largely devoted towards locating the nearest house party or finding a date has transformed into a massive corporation and media company that has reshaped the history of the world. Of course, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, Pinterest, others have followed suit in that regard. And the effect of these platforms has been a massive shift in how we consume news and information. No longer do people wait to read the newspaper. Nobody's tuning in and waiting for six or 10 o'clock to see what's happening on TV. Everybody receives their news in real time through their phone. But most importantly, now everyone is a reporter. Everyone with a smartphone has a voice recorder, a camera, and a platform to share their stories in real time at global scale. This has completely shifted the trajectory of history. So as you look around and see a global pandemic, which happens to coincide with one of the most powerful movements of the last 50 years, what is the role of investigative reporting, truth and fact-checking in the midst of COVID-19, the Black Lives Matter movement and raging protests as people demand justice and change following the tragedies of George Lloyd, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. Today we are speaking with Michael Lista, an accomplished investigative reporter for The Walrus, Toronto Life and numerous other publications, who has covered some of the most intense crimes imaginable over the last decade. This truly is The State of Truth, News and Media with Michael Lista. All right, so our guest today is Michael Lista, a longtime friend, uh, very much an accomplished reporter. Mikey, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. So like, there's so many different things going on in the world. And there's a ton of different things that we're looking to get your take on. But just as a starting point, you and I have known each other for a very long time. And I'm thinking back to when you started your career. And when you started writing, I mean, you're still a young guy in the scope of your career. But when you would have started your career, social media was a tool that people used to keep in touch with people they went to high school with, or to find a date, or to hear about a party, or to keep in touch with people from work that they just wanted to chat with on the side. And Over the last 10 years or so, it has evolved into, obviously, one of the preeminent forms of communication that are shifting culture, shifting societies, shifting politics. And all of that's happened in quite a short period of time. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us about how reporting has changed, how journalism has changed, how the way that stories are told has changed from when you started your career to where you find yourself today.
1: It's such a mammoth subject that it feels hard to get your arms all the way around. But, you know, I, I remember oh. the day that I first heard about this thing called Facebook. I was a student at uh, Queen's University doing my undergrad. And uh, Queen's used to be, you know, with Facebook that first it started only at Harvard and then it moved into the Ivy Leagues. You needed to be a student at a university in order to jump on it. And I remember the day that Queen's email addresses were allowed to set up an account. And I I think like everyone else, as you say, thought of it as this sort of frivolous thing for saying hi to your friend in the other room instead of going and knocking on their door. What it ended up turning into was... So radically different. It's almost inestimable, its influence. I mean, the same is true of, to a certain extent, Twitter, though it's a little bit more niche. YouTube, I think, is the huge one. I was listening to a podcast the other day about a YouTuber who has something like five or six um, times the number of followers as the New York Times. And as a result, I think the way in which people are able to get their information, the information on which they rely to make decisions about the world now, it's more often than not than people are getting their information via Facebook and YouTube. It's almost like a a sort of banality to, to say it now. What does that mean for where we are? The philosopher Kierkegaard said, from the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing is ever made. And I think that social media is as likely on any given day to be a plowshare as it is to be a sword. In other words, it's as likely to be productive as it is destructive. And we, we've seen the ways in which in the 2016 election, the Russians were able to weaponize social media in order to infiltrate that sort of central nervous system, which it's become for, for all of us now to spread this, not, not just misinformation, but disinformation. What any reporter will tell you is the most important person on a masthead is the fact checker. And the process of fact-checking is so incredibly difficult. Every time, you know, i work mostly as an investigative journalist now. And the thing I realize more and more is that it's so difficult to apprehend accurately what's happening even six inches in front of your face. We saw sort of um, an interesting change on Twitter this week when, for the first time, President Trump, who uses his Twitter feed to spread disinformation and misinformation, was fact-checked, and it caused this sort of uproar. But unless there is a kind of fact-checking or a sort of an editorial oversight over these social media platforms, which are essentially publishers, then I think all of us are... In a very bad way, because without fact checking, um, we're sort of like driving with our headlights off.
2: I want to go back to the fact checking. That's definitely a a very important thing to have when it comes to reporting news and factual news. I think it was in April, Statistics Canada reported that out of the subjects they interviewed, 51% still relied and preferred on actual news sources for their news, especially during world events like COVID-19, which makes sense. But for you personally, throughout your career, this journey of yours, would you say that there is a certain pressure as a writer, a journalist, reporter, whatever you call yourself, to have a certain following, to have a certain clout so that people trust you and then the publication comes second? Because we're finding that with social media, people are just innately trusting influencers, someone with influence, just based on their following count or what they do. Do you find that for you as a reporter, as someone who is actually a journalist reporting on real stuff, that that kind of comes with the territory in order to gain the trust from the public?
1: It's a great question. I remember the day that I got my blue check on, on Twitter. I don't have by any means a large following, but because of what I do for a living, it was possible for me to get that blue check. The day that happened, I was in my own way sort of suspicious of it because I didn't really know what it means. The way that you build credibility in reporting about the world, I think, is the process by which truth is filtered, reported, written about, broadcast, and sent into um, people's homes in front of their eyes. The blue check does not mean that tomorrow I can't say a false thing. And the same is true for, for anyone who has it. The fact that something is popular or someone is popular does not give them a monopoly on what is right. That's what can sometimes alarm me. The great power and beauty of social media is the sort of democratizing effect that it has on who gets to speak. Not everyone is as privileged as I to be able to write for, you know, these great organizations. But at the same time, there are many writers and reporters I know who have vastly larger followings, who I trust less than ones who have fewer. You know, I think especially in this moment when we have a sort of pathological liar as the quote-unquote leader of the free world, we need to make sure that we're still educating one another on what media literacy is, how to consume news and information. A blue check is not the thing necessarily that, you know, validates the veracity of what someone has to say.
0: So Mike, that's really an interesting topic. I'd like to delve into that a little bit further now too, because Bridget and I both went to journalism school together. And at that time, I could definitely sense, and Bridget, I don't know if you agree, that traditional media companies were really sort of failing to adopt more of a digital strategy, that they were just sort of tooth and nail fighting the fact that a lot of things were headed towards digital. Even Bridget, you might recall that in our second year, we had to pick either print or broadcast. There was no real sort of curriculum built around digital at all. And this wasn't that long ago.
1: That's fascinating. I had no idea. I didn't go to journalism school.
0: That was 2011. I'm not talking about like the year 2000 or something either, right? It's not that long ago. And yeah, that was the case. I remember just on my own, I sort of carved out some digital work. We started building a website. We created a new site for online. We just sort of did things on the side, tried to be industrious to learn it because you could kind of see that's where the world was headed. But In traditional media, they were so reluctant to let go of the way things were. So I could always kind of see that path. You could see that they're not keeping up with the times. They're so rigid and stubborn in their approach and their belief in how news should be told that they're going to put themselves out of business. And then what's happened over the last decade plus is what you were just mentioning just a few moments ago, which is the idea that how right you are or how accurate you are or how important what you have to say is tied to your popularity or following. That if you're a reporter with 500,000 followers, you must have a more accurate way of telling stories than somebody that has 3,000, which is preposterous. It doesn't make any sense. Ultimately, it comes down to the work that you do, but there's this weird sort of shift that has taken place where there's an association between truth and following, which is not how it should be necessarily, at least in my opinion. So on that topic, and just delving back to what you said a moment ago, there was a recent sale that took place in Toronto of the Toronto star for $53 million. And the Toronto star has been one of the most popular dailies throughout the country for decades. It's a very historic brand and $53 million that sounds so low. And then at the exact same time, right around the same week, Joe Rogan signed a podcast deal with Spotify for a hundred million dollars. So Joe Rogan's content is nearly double the value of one of Canada's most popular dailies. When you hear something like that, and when this is the reality of reporting and news, because Joe Rogan is a news source now, we have to admit he gets great guests. He gets Elon Musk. He gets all of these incredible people to come on and tell their stories. He is giving out the news, but he's not a trained journalist. He's not a trained fact checker. He's sort of riffing as he goes. So when you see the state of news and the state of journalism and storytelling, In this context, Toronto Star 53 million, Joe Rogan 100 million, what does that tell you about where we're
1: at? I saw that Joe Rogan sale and my eyeballs bulged out, I think along with with everyone else's. It was shocking. I, I have to say I'm a big consumer of podcasts, but I've actually never heard an episode of Joe Rogan's podcast, and I've always been sort of baffled at his popularity. One thing that we need to reckon with is that frequently when we are in the business of, let's broadly call it, reporting, but just sort of like trying to tell the truth, one thing that reporters will will tell you very quickly is that if you want to be a popular person, you shouldn't go into reporting because you will make all sorts of enemies. Your readers won't like what you have to say. Your sources may be disappointed with the government agencies or politicians or public figures who you're writing about may dislike you. This goes back to a sort of old problem that reporters have always had, which is the attempt to try and balance access with accuracy. Because what can often happen is if you're too accurate in your reporting, you lose access to the people who can furnish it. I think a similar thing is true today. So, for example, there's a YouTuber named PewDiePie. So he has orders of magnitude more followers than The New York Times. Now, what does that mean? Does that say anything about the value of what PewDiePie is giving to the world versus what the New York Times is? No. In the same way that Cheetos is probably more popular than broccoli, it doesn't mean that Cheetos is better for you. Do you know what I mean? We are modestly evolved mammals. And going forward as a society, we need to understand that popularity, even in, you know, the sort of media we consume, is not any intrinsic measure of value. We're never going to be able, I don't think, to make the New York Times more popular on YouTube than PewDiePie. We don't want to die on that hill. Instead, I think we need to make sure that we're educating one another about the relative value of each and that it probably isn't measured by the number of subs you have.
2: Yeah, I certainly agree with that. Recently, I sat on a panel to discuss the landscape of traditional media, and the big question that was asked was, is traditional media dead? I certainly don't think so. There's definitely a need for it for many different reasons. But we just talked about, obviously, the evolution. And we talked about the fine line between sharing your opinion and sharing the truth. So in the States, on publications, on networks, we see a lot of opinions offered from the journalists themselves. But here, it's a lot different. I think that we're a lot more risk-adversive. Would you agree with that?
1: I think that there are more outlets like within traditional media for sort of like opinion pieces, the personal essay, just because the media landscape is just so much vaster. But I think there is something too about the Canadian character that you're getting at, where I think we are more risk averse people, as you say. The literary critic Northrop Frye said that Canadians are just Americans who opted out of the revolution. I think it is true that we are a little bit more risk averse. I'm not necessarily sure I should add. I'm not necessarily sure if that's a bad thing. I write both, you know, reported pieces and essays. And I always do wonder if something I say in an essay will preclude me from being able to report about something that might have a similarity with what I've written about in in an essayistic form. But it does feel like people who opine are more popular than people who report.
2: So do you find that you have to walk a fine line when it comes to each and every topic that you approach and how you come to execute it?
1: I think so, yeah, because I think that, like, whatever bridge you're willing to cross in an essay to give your opinion about something, you need to be ready to have that bridge burnt. Because when you go to report on a story or a topic that you've written about in an essay, then it's perfectly right for the people involved, the individuals and the sort of organizations to be able to look back and say, oh, look what this guy thinks about us, about what we do, right? Why should I speak to him? His mind is already made up. You know, this is like the old sort of like, you know, reporters conundrum, right, of whether or not you want access or you want accuracy. I think it's always dangerous for a reporter to opine. But what's scary to reporters is that it feels like opinion does better in the public square. People writing about their feelings about a thing than the sort of cold, judicious work that a reporter has to do. I have to tell you, that scares the hell out of me because opinion is very cheap. Reporting is hard and expensive. And often the truth is unpopular and complicated. And I think we crave as people, we want someone to tell us not what the thing is, but how we should feel about it, which sort of downloads onto content creators the hard work of um, media literacy, of sort of digesting the world that I think we still need to take upon ourselves.
0: So, Mike, that's a really great segue into another question that I have for you, which is so for hundreds of years, The media kind of told the public what they should know about or what they should care about. Right. You picked up the newspaper and you found out what happened yesterday or, you know, what's been going on lately or from the sixties onwards, when everybody had a TV in their home, you'd tune into the news at six or tune into the news at night and and see what happened in your world. Because for the most part, pre-internet, pre-cell phones, you were disconnected from that. You relied on these people to tell you what was going on. And then that's now all changed. Now every single person with a cell phone. Can not only play the role of reporter, but they have a global distribution network that gives them access to the world in real time. Everybody can tell their own truth in their own terms. And there's a lot of really good things that come with that. For instance, obviously, more recently, we can see with what happened with George Floyd. While that is horrifying, there is some benefit to the fact that that type of systemic racism was put on blast for the world to see. So nobody can say, well, maybe he did this. No, everybody saw it. You know what's up. There's nothing to debate, but I'm curious now in a world where anybody can tell their truth and in a world where confirmation bias exists at an all time high, because the way that especially the internet, Google, social platforms exist is by providing you with content that you engage with. So if I start engaging with certain topics or certain people or certain hashtags, then they're more likely to serve me more of that. Where... Hundreds of years ago, if I felt a certain type of way, I might read an article tomorrow that challenges my beliefs, that make me question how I feel about something. And I didn't have control over what was being served to me. It was just brought to my attention. And then it would force me to reconcile my beliefs with what's happening. So there's this weird sort of thing happening now. And I'm curious, you're a truth teller. You go out there to try to find the facts. You investigate stories, you investigate crimes to find the truth and all around us in the world. Now we're living in a place where media isn't fact-checked and where anybody can be a reporter and where confirmation bias kind of reigns supreme because whatever you engage with, that's what you will be served more of. So I'm curious, do you think that people care about the truth now or do they care about confirming
1: how they already feel? That is such an excellent question and Sadly, I think right now we're in the moment where people want the truth that they already believe in to be confirmed. I don't think that that is necessarily something that is unique to our time, but I think now you can sort of curate your world. You can curate the news and the sources that you have trusted once before with the click of a button you can follow them and have it sort of reconfirmed and i think that's what that's what people want most from especially from social media but also from uh, sort of legacy media so for example one of the weird results of the rise of right-wing news which had traditionally not really been a thing if you look back at mid-century america i mean there were essentially only you know, three television networks, which you could go to, about which right-wing conservative folks, especially politicians, you would always scream about liberal bias. Now, in America, and to to a certain extent in Canada as well, there are two worlds um, that are happening simultaneously. One is the left-wing news, or centrist news, and the other is right-wing news. And I'm not sure if you guys have turned on Fox News lately, or fired up Rush Limbaugh. But the stuff that they are talking about is an entirely different world than the stuff that sort of more mainstream uh, news outlets are talking about. That, I think, is amplified even more on social media, especially on YouTube with its sort of brilliantly devious algorithm, which sends people further and further into sort of partisan radicalizing rabbit holes. The thing that's required for a free society to exist is a shared set of facts. We can have different opinions on those facts. If we don't both believe that the sky is blue, then we're living in different worlds. And that scares the hell out of me. Mike, are you saying you don't believe in alternative facts? One of the most, by the way, a story I would love to do is the story of that marriage, Kellyanne Conway and George Conway must be the most bizarre marriage. Kind of heartening that two people who believe so, such radically different things can get into bed together at the same night. Maybe it's something we should all aspire to.
2: Trying to find levity in a dark time, that's good. Last week, we saw um, CNN reporter Omar Jimenez get arrested live on air just for reporting live, on-site, out in the field uh, during the Minneapolis riots. And I'm sure you saw that as well. As a journalist yourself, What are the hurdles that you're personally facing to get out there to get the facts and do your job this day and age?
1: I was a few years ago it didn't go quite as far as it went um with him but I was uh assigned by the Walrus a story about refugees who were fleeing Trump's America just around the time of the of the Muslim ban and I went down to Emerson Manitoba which is just right on the border of this tiny little like almost a um a sort of ghost town had once been a very a very large prosperous place and now was just a like a little tiny spot with two motels and one bar and one restaurant. And uh, photojournalists and I, we were there for 10 days. We would cross the border every night and go and track these refugees who were coming across the border. You know, we would stay up all night and then cross back into Canada, go back to our motel rooms and try and get a little bit of sleep. And one night the RCMP knocked on my door and they didn't arrest me, but it was a very intimidating conversation. Obviously, we hadn't done anything wrong, but there's like an index of press freedom. Canada does not rank all that high. It doesn't score very well. Canadian, especially court reporters, were always griping about how hard it is to access stuff that happens in court, court files, transcripts, stuff like that, which should be open to the public and aren't. I recently, you know, I reported a story for Toronto Life about this cold case murder investigation that turned into what's called a Mr. Big. I was told by the Ministry of the Attorney General that I couldn't access the open court file. They said there was like a there was like a flag on this file. And in order to get it, I would have to petition a judge for it. It would have cost us thousands of dollars in legal fees. The last story I did for Toronto Life before that was about this devious doctor who was inducing his at-term female pregnant patients with a dangerous induction pill without their consent for money. The CPSO had reprimanded him. We had to extract the contents of um, his reprimand by legal force costs us many thousands of dollars. Every time it's a fight in Canada to get access to stuff which should be public. One thing that we now in these COVID days are really scared about is that now we're not sure if you know, due to epidemiological reasons, if reporters are going to be allowed in open courtrooms, there's like this whole new process that that it appears we're gonna have to go through in order to petition the courts to be allowed to be present for open court proceedings. I mean, it's very, it's very spooky. And no one is going to give this to us. Do I trust just like sort of um, Instagram and Twitter personalities to, to do that stuff for us? No, it has to be reporters who do this every single day, day in and day out, who fight for it all the time. So Mike, you keep teeing me up beautifully. I wanted to actually just pivot the discussion a little bit towards
0: reporting in the midst of a pandemic. Maybe just piggyback on those comments a little bit further. I know, especially for your line of work, when less so about the essays, but more so when it comes to investigative reporting, you have to go meet with people. I'm sure plenty is done over the phone, but a lot of it is actually, you know, rolling up your sleeves and going to the courthouse, going to knock on people's doors, going to approach different people that will bring you closer to the truth. So in the midst of a pandemic, when even still now everybody is being, you know, essentially asked to stay home for the most part, how do you do your job?
1: The last two months, I did a lot of COVID reporting for Toronto Life. We decided that we could only do it over the phone, you know, because it felt like that was the only responsible way that we could do it. Now, I have to say that I've always been a phone warrior. I enjoy the phone. I'm an elderly millennial and still long for the telephone and love having long conversations, you know, not just with sources, but with my friends over the phone. The phone is, has always been and will continue to be our ally. Now, at the same time, especially when you're meeting a new source who doesn't know who the hell you are and doesn't know if they can really trust you. Meeting them matters, you know, meeting face to face, looking one another in the eye, breathing the same air really matters. And it can create that sort of trust and intimacy, which is so vital to telling a story properly. This is going going to change our Jobs radically, especially as it pertains to the court. If the social distancing rules apply to the galleries of courtrooms, I can see how the government might say, oh, well, there's just not enough room for all of you. So, you know, we're only going to let one of you in, right? Who decides who that reporter is? Is the political or perceived political bias of that publication going to be considered? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I hope the answer is no. But we're working out all these rules in real time. And it's a moment for us to remain vigilant and to find out how these decisions are being made, because the the sort of perspicuousness in society that's required for us to see it clearly, to understand it clearly, can't be a sort of collateral damage to this terrible um, pandemic. And it's reporters who are going to have to fight for it.
2: I don't know about you, Mike, but I actually think about the next crop, the next generation of journalism students or the next generation of reporters that are going to be covering world events that are similar to what we're facing right now, if not worse, on a bigger scale. And I always think just how quickly the landscape is changing already in our age and how quickly we are forced to adapt and think creatively on our feet to get the job done how they're going to have to operate on their own terms and how the landscape will actually look in 10 years, 20 years time. Is that ever kind of a concern for you as you continue your career or see the next batch and next wave come up?
1: I would be lying if I said no. I mean, you know, we've seen through the course of this pandemic, we've seen just devastating layoffs and furloughs, downsizing at legacy media organizations, the effects of which are still as yet incalculable. My God, The the Atlantic just laid off, I think it was 20 20 people from their staff. You're seeing it at Vice, you're seeing it at Condé Nast. The Atlantic is, what, 140-something years old and produces some of the best journalism in the world. It's terrifying. I think all the time about what young people who were thinking about a career in journalism are thinking now. We have to sort of bifurcate the issue. The first issue is an economic one. Why would a young, great mind get into a field that is in such a precarious position? How do you continue to recruit those great minds into going into journalism over going into law or business or any other field? It's an incredibly difficult question. The other part of the issue is, and this one I think is slightly more mysterious, I think there is still a kind of personality that is so desperate to, to sort of understand, to make real sense of what's happening in the world through a systematic way, the systematic way that's passed down from one reporter to another, which is sort of obstinate and knows that like reporting is really hard. It's always been mostly underpaid. And yet there's like a sort of a kind of like contrarian oppositional attitude, which I think will continue to attract people to the profession. If, are there enough jobs for them? Are there enough ways? And if not jobs, are there enough ways for them to sort of like manufacture runs, as they say in baseball, in order to like cobble together something like a living? I really hope so. Because without it, you know, hurtling into the dark with like a pathological liar as the president of the United States, with all the sort of institutional boundaries to reporting on the truth faithfully, I hope there's still a path forward. I still sort of think there is. So Mike, if we're putting on our predictive
0: caps as a follow-up to that, and we sort of recognize the changing landscape of media and storytelling and what truth means and the fact that there's a whole lot of media companies that are suffering, like you just mentioned, amidst this pandemic, there's been thousands of layoffs and furloughs, and there's a lot of really great newsmen and newswomen and news people that might have to look to take their careers in a different direction. And meanwhile, there's also a whole lot of probably young, up-and-coming, ambitious people that are in the midst of these protests and are tracking what's happening and sharing that and will build up profiles in their own right. So. I'm curious, if you're looking towards the future, do you think that many of these media companies that have historically been very, very powerful and have had massive audiences will find a way to reinvent and find a way to evolve and bring in great talent to continue doing what they have done? Or do you think that this is the beginning of an entire new era of news and storytelling and maybe social media will continue to grow in terms of, their platform as stories maybe something new will emerge maybe um news people will
1: emerge just with their own independent platforms where do you see this headed right now journalists never want to be in the prediction business for all sorts of reasons it reminds me of this thing that aristotle said about writing he said this whole writing thing i don't know if it's good man i think it might be bad for people's memories you know you used to have to just you know, remember what someone said, and now you can write it down. I don't know if that's good for us. So in some ways, I think the angst that we feel about the current state of media is one that that humans have in one way or another held for over 2000 years, it will change in ways we can't quite predict. For me, the thing To keep our eye on, or the disagreement, I should say, between Facebook and Twitter about what to do about this whole fact checking issue. Twitter has decided to fact check the president when he says untrue or inflammatory things. Facebook has said we will never do that. And here is where, you know, sort of the exigencies of business and truth-telling intersect. It reminds me of this thing that Michael Jordan said. It seems to me like, like Facebook is saying what Michael Jordan said when he refused to take a political stand during the height of his power. He said, Republicans buy Nikes, too. That's essentially what Facebook is saying right now. The questions we're going to want to keep asking as a society is not just whether or not traditional journalism, in the way that we've always known it, will go forward. But more, how will we as a society govern and regulate these behemoths of social media who are functionally publishers? Will we allow them to make decisions that are based mostly on business instead of on veracity? Or will we say, no, this is something kind of like a utility whose public power prevents it from simply being a business. That's the way I think we need to go. And the spirit of truth telling and truth finding is one that we need to continue to instill in each other, in our children, not necessarily for the purposes of having a job, but as a sort of like civic vocation, that if we're going to get through this terrible, crazy moment that we're hurtling through together, we have to have, if not the sort of traditional journalism and journalistic outlets that we had lived with in the past, at least the spirit of journalism, which is that the truth is hard to apprehend, but we can figure it out.
0: That was really beautifully said. And it's so fascinating, right? There's sort of this battle going on in terms of information and truth and knowing what to believe and who to believe and understanding the angles. And it's coming at a time where A lot of the resources devoted to those things is diminishing. And so the way that we consume information and media and truth is changing all the time. But I guess one thing that has been proven true throughout the history of humanity is the stories will continue to be told in some way, shape or form. The stories are there. There's no shortage of stories to tell. It's just a question of where we will go to get them and what lengths those storytellers will go to, to ensure what they're sharing with us are truthful. I know for yourself, you are heavily devoted towards finding the truth. I've always enjoyed reading your articles. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you so much for joining us today on this episode and continued luck with all
1: of your truth telling moving forward. It was such a pleasure. Take care of yourselves. And um, I look forward to the day when uh, we can all see each other in person again.